I'm Derek Alexander Pope, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast rediscovers the untold stories of the American quest for liberty and justice for all. This week, we take a look at the legal efforts during Reconstruction that gave the right to vote to black men, and we explore some of the political and cultural shenanigans that denied that privilege to women. That's our focus for this episode that we call A Wall of Fire, the 15th Amendment. The policy of Reconstruction has been the means to extinguish the last signs of the rebellion and to reestablish order and authority in the southern states. The 14th Amendment invested the colored man with citizenship, and the Reconstruction Acts gave him his share of political power. The 15th Amendment therefore became necessary. It secures political equality and was the completion of the work of emancipation. It purges the union of the last taint of slavery and makes Reconstruction national. The New York Times, February 21st, 1870. The right to vote has always been a privilege limited to a few. It goes all the way back to when society was divided into three functional classes, the church, the nobility, and the people. The church was responsible for the spiritual and educational values of the community. The king had the obligation to provide for security against threats of danger, and the people, well, the people did the work. They were the merchants, the artisans, and the peasants, the one who made the clothes and who grew the food for the whole community. They lived and worked on the land for the one who owned it, and the one who owned it was considered the lord of the land and the lord of the people who lived and worked on the land. That's where we get the term landlord. And the right to make decisions about public affairs of the community was reserved to those who owned the land. And back then, it was just the church and the nobility, the ruling classes. That would last for centuries until the idea took hold that property could be owned by anyone, not just the church and not just the king and his coterie. But owning land would continue to be one of the qualifying factors for who could vote. Because of a legal principle called primogenitor, title to property would pass to the firstborn heir and most times men were the preferred heir to inherit land. There were some instances when women could inherit property, but not own it in their own names like John Wells, who gave his daughter Martha land and slaves, including her half-sister Sally Hemings. But even when she became Martha Jefferson, the wife of Thomas Jefferson, the nation's third president and author of the Declaration of Independence, she could not own land and she could not vote. No one gave a first or second thought to slaves voting because they were, after all, just property. And so, at the time of the American founding, it was this confused mix of custom, this tapestry of tradition that produced the legal setting for voting. 
a setting that awarded it to those who were male and free and over 21 and owners of land, and that lasted until the 15th Amendment came along. The first major note in the haunting and melancholy sound of the ballot box blues. It became the law of the land on February 3, 1870, and it was the last of the three Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. Each one was designed to make the nation the more perfect union it said it would be. The first was the 13th Amendment, which made slavery invalid. It was ratified December 6, 1865. The second was the 14th Amendment, providing citizenship to the newly emancipated. It was ratified July 9, 1868. The right to vote was the subject of the last one, the 15th Amendment. Back then, the right to vote was called suffrage, or the elective franchise, and the first hint that voting would be a part of Reconstruction came when Abraham Lincoln mentioned it in his White House speech two days after the Civil War had come to an end. But the idea of voting rights had been on the minds and the agenda of others before the war had even begun and before slavery had been outlawed. It was the clarion call of lawyers like John Mercer Langston. Langston was the first black man to be admitted to practice law in Ohio and had been elected town clerk in 1855. He led the effort to create a black regiment of soldiers to serve during the Civil War and in October of 1864, Langston was elected president of the National Rights League. Its goals, the immediate unconditional abolition of slavery and equality before the law. And for Langston, equality meant the franchise. The full accounting is clear. The debt side of the national ledger is heavy with our battlefield contributions, but it can be brought into balance with the franchise. That balance is our aim, and it is your obligation. John Mercer Langston, December 1863. His voice would soon be joined on the national stage by another fierce supporter for the right to vote. Frederick Douglass had come to the nation's attention in 1843 when he joined the American Anti-Slavery Society. Douglass became its most fiery abolitionist. A few days before Lincoln's speech at the White House, Douglass spoke at the annual meeting of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and just like Langston, his passion also included voting rights. I am for the immediate, unconditional, and universal enfranchisement of the black man in every state of the Union. Without this, he is the slave of society, and holds his liberty as a privilege, not a right. Frederick Douglass, April 1865 Within a few days, Lincoln was assassinated, primarily because he expressed his support for black voting rights. But his assassination shifted the control of Reconstruction from the President to the Congress from what was called Presidential Reconstruction to Congressional Reconstruction. And as this shift unfolded, Congress was cautious. Cautious because of two factors. First, it had just passed the 13th Amendment in January 1865, and getting it ratified and into effect wouldn't happen until December. 
But most important was the second factor, Andrew Johnson. Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln as president, was an avid supporter of states' rights and sympathized with the claims of white supremacy. He wanted to get the former Confederate states readmitted to the Union quickly, to get representatives in Congress from those states so they could be a hedge against the efforts of the radical Republicans who were adamant about pushing for the citizenship rights of the newly emancipated and punishing those who had waged rebellion against the Union. Johnson's main weapon? The threat of amnesty and pardon for the Southerners who had caused the Civil War. The right to vote for black men was a political hot button because freed black people would now figure in the whole count of the Southern population, not just the three-fifths federal ratio that was part of the original Constitution. And this, this was something that would give the Southern states much greater power, far more power than the radical Republicans in Congress wanted. So they chose to push the button of black voting rights only when they could exercise direct control over Reconstruction. I do not touch on the question of Negro suffrage, whether those who have fought our battles should all be allowed to vote or only to those of a paler hue. I leave to be discussed in the future when Congress can take legitimate cognizance of it. Thaddeus Stevens, September 1865. When she wrote her letter to Thaddeus Stevens, Maria Chandler asked the question that was on the minds of almost all of the 13 million women who populated the United States. Why is the elective franchise denied us? Will any sane person declare that we are not of sound mind? If that is proved, then never permit another female to attend the public schools, close all the female seminaries and colleges. How extremely absurd it appears in the light of reason to allow men the elective franchise who can neither read nor write and withhold it from women of cultivated minds and scholarly attainment. Maria Chandler, April 1866. The war was over. Slavery had been abolished by law. There was talk of voting for black men, but women were not in the discussion. Why? Why? There was no good answer except they were not. I hold that women as well as men have the right to vote and my heart and my voice go with the movement to extend suffrage to women. Frederick Douglass, January 1865. The radical Republicans in Congress continued to exert control over the context and tempo of Reconstruction and the right to vote. As could be expected, there was instant objection to their actions and their intentions. The query comes up whether these two races, situated as they were before, without preparation, without time for passion and excitement to be appeased, and without time for the slightest improvement, whether the one should be turned loose upon the other and be thrown together at the ballot box with this enmity and hate between them. The query comes up right there, whether we don't commence a war of the races. Andrew Johnson, February 1866. 
But Congress was firmly in the driver's seat and they wasted little time in making the big push for the right to vote for black men. In June 1866, they passed legislation to amend the Constitution and immediately sent it to the states to be ratified. In what became the 14th Amendment, it turned all of those who had been formerly enslaved into citizens of the United States and the state wherein they resided. Their privileges and immunities as citizens could not be abridged. Their life, liberty, and property could not be deprived, and their equal protection of the laws could not be denied. Later that year, Frederick Douglass made his thinking on the matter quite clear. No general assertion of human rights can be of any practical value. The true way and the easiest way is to make our government entirely consistent with itself and give to every loyal citizen the elective franchise, a right and power which will form a wall of fire for his protection. Frederick Douglass, December 1866. Still pushing, in 1867, Congress passed the first of the Reconstruction Acts, they called it an act to provide for the more efficient government of the rebel states, measures designed to set the conditions under which the former Confederate states would be readmitted to the Union. It placed the southern states under military control, made them craft new constitutions, required them to ratify the 14th Amendment and grant voting rights to black men. Have not loyal blacks quite as good a right to choose rulers and make laws as rebel whites? I am for Negro suffrage in every rebel state. If it be just, it should not be denied. If it be necessary, it should be adopted. If it be a punishment to traitors, they deserve it. That is Stevens, January 1867. That was the national debate. Voting rights was set in terms of preference or order. Who should get the right first? Keep in mind, there were still some places in the country where even white men who did not own property were not able to vote. The view about preference or order was met with opposition from the most obvious corner of the conversation. The question of precedence has no place on an equal rights platform. The only reason why it ever found a place was that there were some who insisted that women must stand back and wait until another class should be enfranchised. If you will not give the whole loaf of justice to the entire people, then give it first to women, to the most intelligent and capable portion of the women at least. Because in the present state of government, it is intelligence, it is morality which is needed. Susan B. Anthony, May 1869. And just as there was division over the question of granting black men the right to vote, there was also dissension in the women's suffrage movement, simply because the demand for equal voting rights for women did not include black women. For some, like Frances Harper, there was a bitter irony and a bewildering implication to that oversight. And at the 11th National Women's Rights Convention in New York, she told the nearly 1,000 people attending what it actually looks like when you're looked over. You white women here speak of rights. I speak of wrongs. Let me go tomorrow morning and take my seat in one of your streetcars? 
and the conductor will put up his hand and stop the car rather than let me ride. Talk of giving women the ballot box? <laughs> Go on. It is a normal school, and the white women of this country need it. While there exists this brutal element in society which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, May 1866. The 15th Amendment would be ratified in February 1870, and black men would have the right to vote. Women did not get that privilege until some 50 years later with the passage of the 20th Amendment, and black women would keep singing the ballot box blues until the adoption of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Many thought that with the adoption of the 15th Amendment, they had taken the last step in solving the big problem. If only they could have known that it was just the first step, because the problem was just beginning to show itself. Next week, we'll introduce a new segment of Hidden Legal Figures called Can I Get a Witness? At the end of the month, after the first three episodes, we'll be joined by experts in law and history who will help us explore some of the current conditions of the issues we've focused on in our episodes. Next week, we'll be joined by Theron Johnson and Brian Robinson for a discussion of the Ballot Box Blues. That and more will be part of our next episode. Want to know more about this podcast? Then visit us at HiddenLegalFigures.com. Each Wednesday, our blog called Revealed Behind the Hidden Legal Figures podcast will give you additional information about the current episode. And over on YouTube, every Thursday, you'll find our What I Learned video. That's where we talk about what we discovered from this episode and give you the chance to share with us what new information you've acquired. As always, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in each week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.